0: Thanks, Will, for doing that. I'm reminded uh, Chuck Colson, who was the former, was the late Chuck Colson, who was a founder of Prison Fellowship Ministries. I was in a service once where he was speaking, and, and he, he said, you know, I'm used to, on Sunday morning, speaking in prisons. And then he said, you know, it's not that I'm not used to speaking to sinners. I'm just used to speaking to those who have been caught. And the same, the same thing went over the audience. We're like, you know, we got to look inward. we all there. And I love how, how you said, Will, look, if you feel stuck in Jesus, you do not have to be stuck. You, you can continue to. And so we want to be open to that, uh, as to what the Lord wants to do, to continue to set people free, because that's what uh, the church is about, is it not? You know, we, uh, I could stand up here probably for about 20 minutes just quoting different commercials or different movies and different things from different lines, but if you asked me uh, to quote Shakespeare it would be shorter than a TED Talk. And, and I, I just didn't pay that much attention to Shakespeare. I don't know what that says about me. Maybe the theatrical arts are just not my sweet spot, although I have a great appreciation for them. But as I was thinking through, I thought there is one that comes from Shakespeare that I think you probably know too. Uh, and you don't even have to be into Shakespeare to understand. I could say two words and you'll know the rest of it. To be, that is the question, right? You don't even have to be. And so, in that, you're thinking, man, that just comes right like that. And so, as I was thinking about that, obviously, that comes from Hamlet at the beginning of the, of the play, Hamlet, where he is contemplating life and and whether the 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 sufferings he's having in this life or his fear of what comes life after death, and he's just kind of going through that thing. As I was thinking about that, it, it really resonated in my mind. And it kind of in that same vein, as I was reading through 1 Corinthians five, which is our passage that we're going to do this morning. As I was reading through it, that line came to me because this morning I want to change it up a bit, but it's going to be to judge or not to judge, that is the question. Because when we read through 1 Corinthians 5, there is a whole lot of judging going on. There was judgment of motives. There was judgment of gifts, whether it was Paul or Peter or Apollos or who liked what. There was a lot of judgment going on there. There was judgment of, of sin. There was judging those outside the church that didn't look like they were doing the right thing. And so Paul in chapter 5, steps into this. And so we're really transitioning. As you look at 1 Corinthians, there's there's different major headings of what Paul goes through. The first one that we spent quite a few weeks on was just division and how there was division in the church. The second one now, as Paul steps into and he slides into, it, it would be kind of the sexual dysfunction of the church, the sexual brokenness. Corinth was a sexually broken culture with sexually broken people like we all are that resulted in a sexually broken church. And so the church was beginning to infiltrate, or the the world was beginning to infiltrate its way into the church, and the culture was influencing what was going on. And Paul, as he does in 1 Corinthians, what he does, he does two things. He identifies the problem, he applies the gospel to the problem, And then he reminds them of how they're not living up to the very thing that they say they believe. He says, your lives are inconsistent on that. And so when we look at 1 Corinthians 5, I thought, well, we just need to first just read through this because it is not a... It's not one of those ones that a lot of people put on their wall and have posters on. Okay? This, is, this is a hard chapter. And so we need to read through to get the context on this. So we'll read 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone to the morning and put out your own fellowship, the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit as the one who is present with you in this way. I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's doing this. So when you are assembled, I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord." Since your boasting is not good, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old leaven with malice and wickedness, but with leavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church are you not to judge those inside god will judge those outside expel the wicked person from among you amen we all got complete understanding go love first we'll see you later <laughs> <sighs> You know, sometimes when you read this you go okay lord what in the world are we going to do with this one you know, and Paul just goes out, so here's what I want to do this morning. I want, I want to identify the problem. I want to find out what, what exactly is going on here that can relate to us. And then I'm going to just talk about this, to judge or not to judge. Because I think that's a big issue when it comes to our culture. And so first, I'm just identifying the problem. Corinth was a place of enormous wealth and immorality. That's not a great combination. And so when you have money and you have power, a lot of things can just kind of begin to slip by and people think that they have it. And so when we mentioned that at the beginning when we talked about Corinth, that it was, there was this um, place that the housed prostitutes up on the hill, Epaphrodites, the, the goddess Epaphrodites, and had a thousand temple prostitutes that were there. And, and that had an effect and it poisoned and influenced the culture of Corinth. In fact, there was a comic playwright, uh, Aristophanes, who coined the phrase Corinthianizers. He says, if you were immoral or you were a fornicator, instead of using that, you'd say, oh, you're just a Corinthianizer. So Corinth was really a place where what goes on in Corinth stays in Corinth. And, and so to be a Corinthianizer was one who was to be able to just go around and was to, any, anything could go. And it's no wonder then that this immorality would make its way into the church. You, we, we cannot not be influenced by the culture. And the, and the first example that Paul gives here is a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. And most consider this, that he was his stepmother. That he was sleeping with his stepmom. And the church, you know... We, we can assume that the man was a believer, but the, the father and the stepmother probably weren't because Paul doesn't say anything about them. He just centers in on this man. And, and it's interesting, Paul doesn't take much time. He doesn't try, doesn't try to take any time to go, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. Because he's like, even, even the, those outside the church know this is wrong, even they know it. He says, what, what really is the worst problem here is that this is going on, and you don't care. And, and, and as a church, you're just justifying it. You're just kind of letting it go, and you going, well, it's not that big of a problem. And, and, and as I research this further, what they, what they think is that this person who was doing this was a person of wealth and status. So he had a lot of money, and he had a lot of power, and maybe nobody wanted to, wanted to approach it. We see that in our culture. Anytime you have somebody who has power and high position and money, they kind of get this attitude: is that they're invincible, don't they? We see it in politics. We see it in sports. We see it in coaches, we see it in players, we see it in in all kinds of things across the spectrum. When the the further up you go, the more you feel like you're just invincible and you can get away with things. And so maybe this guy was like this, but the problem is the church was silent. So oh maybe, maybe they're like, oh, I don't want to judge. You know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, cross him. You know, what am I going to do? Maybe he won't give. Who knows what it all was? But Paul says some pretty stern things. He says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh in verse 5. He says, purge the evil person from among you. You know, it, it reads like, you know, look, if someone's caught in sin, man, just, just kick him out. And you're like, wow, Paul, you know, where's the love? You know, how, how are you going to work through this one? And, but in saying deliver him over to Satan, what he's saying is, look, unless they repent and they turn, and then when we expel from them from the church and we remove them from the very thing that has any kind of redemptive work in their life, when they get out there, hopefully what will happen is, is the way of the world will have its way with them, which is to seek, kill, and destroy, and, and they'll feel the effects of it, and they'll come back in. You go, know, I need the body. I, I need the church. The, the world is, is chewing me up and it is spitting me out. I mean, the world has always been a harsh place. And if this was, his hope was be that you'd be removed from it and that way you would want to come back, which really begs the question, well, what really is Paul's concern here? Because the, Paul, the church really wasn't doing anything about it. What's his concern? Well, there's a couple. One, I think the church would no longer be viewed as having a better hope than the world. In other words, inside here is where the gospel is presented, and inside here is where there's love and there's grace and the yoke is easy. He says, but Paul is saying, look, if, you, if, if the church's yoke isn't easy, and you're putting a bigger burden on people, then why would they want to even come in the church? And so the, the narrower the gap comes between the culture and the church, Paul says, this is dangerous because nobody's gonna to want to come to the church. And in Corinth, this was a big deal because he said they're getting it's they're thinking the, the closer this becomes, they're thinking the worse it is to become in the church. And this is not being in the church isn't gonna be easy because fighting sin isn't easy, but it is freer, if that's a word. You, you can become free in the church. So I think the first is, he just says, I'm worried about the church and the stain on the church because it's looking more and more like the world. And it's not giving any better option to what's going on in the culture. But secondly, I think Paul knows that the church can be influenced in an ungodly direction. In other words, sin spreads. And so when you have that in and you bring this in, I love this, he And this is where the gospel is so central. And we talk about this all the time. But Paul, he he could have just quoted Leviticus. He could have just thrown down the law. Because it says in Leviticus 18.8, Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father, amongst other things. But Paul here is wise in the fact that he doesn't just quote the verse... He doesn't appeal to the law. He appeals to the gospel, which reminds them of who they are and what Christ has done in their life. Notice in verse 6 through 8, he says, Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old leaven, with the malice of wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, so let's connect the dots here. The hallmark event that pointed to the gospel of what Jesus would do was the exodus in Egypt. And so when you look back at the, the, the whole exodus in, in, of Egypt, when God sl- set his people free from Egypt, that thing points so much to what Christ was going to do. And Paul goes right back to that, and he says, Remember the Passover. When God set his people free by having them sacrifice a lamb, put the blood over the doorpost, then when the angel came through and was going to eliminate all the firstborn, he would see the blood post over the Israelites' door, he would pass over, and they would be set free, and that they would go. And it was going to be quick, because Pharaoh wasn't going to like it. And and there was going to be crying throughout Egypt. He's going to to get them out of here. Get them out of here. And so he also instituted where they would have a feast together, both with this lamb and then with unleavened bread. Bread with no yeast in it. And so they would then, they knew that they needed to do this, and there's a couple reasons why. One, they knew they wouldn't have time to let the bread rise. When you read Exodus 12 and Exodus 13, it really shines bright on this, that it was quick. They needed to get out of there, they needed to have the, bring their things that they had with them, and they needed to exit, because now was the time. So they were going to get out of, out of Egypt. It was also a meal to remind them that they were a distinctly different people. Set apart, set apart to be holy, undefiled, and unleavened, if you will. It also looked forward to the day when Christ, the true Passover lamb, would take away their sins and set them free. And notice how it says in the passage, this is who you are. Christ in you is unleavened holiness and righteousness. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we may become the righteousness of God. He's our righteousness. We don't have it in and of ourselves. He says, he's your holiness. He's your righteousness. You're holy because Christ is in you. Your righteousness is Christ in you. It is not of your own. We sang about that this morning. How the host you know, ha- has been tampered. And so it is our own sin. And so the gospel shouts to us. Christ is your righteousness. And he says, I'm going to institute a festival. He said, this festival is the Lord's Supper, which reminds us that Christ is our holiness, that he's our salvation, that he's our redemption. But also what we do when we, when we take the Lord's Supper is we also come and we are to make sure that there is no leavened you know, or, or unleavened the, the yeast of dissension and wickedness. Which is why when given instructions, it says, look, before you come and eat the meal, go if you have something against your brother first and then come and take the meal. So when we come to the Lord's table, the two things that are happening is, one, we're recognizing what he has done, but also we're taking account and going, okay, is there anything, is there any yeast in my life that grows in dissension and malice? Now, where this hooks us up is that in our culture, we don't view yeast as negative. Which is why we all flock to Wild Sweet Williams. <laughs> Can you imagine how popular they would be if they put up a sign and said, we are no longer going to be serving bread with yeast in it. Here's your cinnamon roll. It's flatbread. <laughs> no, here's, here's a scone you know, with a spatula, if you just pick it off, you know. We wouldn't go there because we know what makes it so important is, is the yeast. I think what would be, now this doesn't bring in the whole Passover thing, but I think probably for us, the way they viewed that would be mold for us. Who hasn't opened the refrigerator and seen a, a, a block of cheese that maybe hasn't been touched in a while, and you see a little bluish tint on the corner, do you go, Mmm, that looks so good. I think we should eat that. No, what do you, do you, do you throw the whole block out? No, what do you do? Yeah, you cut it off. You, you cut off the part that, that, that isn't good. And so in this way, he says, so it is with someone who is a believer, but refuses to repent of sin. It can affect the whole body. And so may, and Paul says, look, put them outside into the world, Satan's domain, so that hopefully their senses will get aroused and they'll repent. Now, here's what's sad about this church discipline today is a lot harder. I think because if you confront someone, even lovingly, about a sin, they just leave. They'll I'll go, I'll go find a place where it will be accepted. And there's probably plenty of them. That, that wasn't in true in Corinth. I mean, there, there wasn't a church on every corner in Corinth. I mean, it was the world and the church. And the world really would, you know, chew you up and spit you out. And so he knew that going out into the world would just be like, oh, man, I, I got to get, get back in the church. Because it's the place where I can have those who are going to at least love me through things. Which brings me to this, I think, this whole idea of, of, of judging. To judge or not to judge. If we if we did a street survey and went out amongst people who were unchurched and said, do you know any Bible verse at all? You may not be able to give the address, but do you know anything at all about the Bible? I would bet that you would get one of the most common things that they would state would be do not judge lest you be judged comes from Matthew 7 1 don't judge lest you be judged who are you to judge me you get that a lot I think that would be one that, that would be there and so Paul if you ask Paul you go so are we not to judge he'd go well yes don't judge but then but are we to judge and you go well yes you are to judge and I'm like well, well what is it Paul Well, which one is it? Because when you look at chapter 4, the chapter we just came out of, he says, don't judge. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring it to light, the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. But then you come to this chapter, in chapter 5, and he says, but do judge. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who are you to judge? And you're like, well, what is it, Paul? Do I not or do I? Can't seem to make up our mind. Well, let's, get a, let's see if we can get a handle on this because Paul is consistent here. But first, I want to just what do what are we not to judge? What are we not to judge? The first one is the hidden purposes of the heart, of believers, based on decisions or actions or perspectives or maybe personalities. You can't judge motives. You can't judge someone's actions as long, the caveat here, as long as it's not explicitly sinful. I mean, if it is something that you know is explicitly sinful, then then, then yes, we'll get to that. But don't assume sin just because you think it kind of looks like it might be. Because our hearts can be so biased. And we've all done this. We've all done this. We've all made judgments on people. Maybe we've even done it this morning. You've judged other people. It, it, maybe it was a misunderstanding or a disagreement that led to a concern, I'm really concerned, which then led to a suspicion, which then led to judgment. And that, that track of going down from misunderstanding to concern to suspicion to judgment is greased. And it is just as easy to slide down that quicker than anything. How quickly I can be in my life to have a misunderstanding and go right to judgment. And he says, we have got as a church, you cannot do that. We are not given that. Just because you see some smoke, you can't assume there's fire. He said, just in that in the church... If we, if we led with believing the best in one another, the church would be a whole new place. But he says what we do is we immediately can begin to cast judgment. So first of all, you can't judge the hidden purposes of the heart as long as it's not explicitly sinful. Secondly, we can't judge non-believers. He says God judges those outside. This is why Paul didn't even mention the mother or the dad in this situation because they were outside the church. He goes, we can't expect the unchurched to act like the church. We can't expect them to behave in a way that they don't even know. I mean, this is what the Pharisees do, right? I mean, they judged everybody. Everybody. And there was this self-righteousness in it. And so what happens is, then the church begins to feel like this oppressive place that just casts judgment on the world. And then we go, but come. You know, I think, I don't know where it was. I was driving down the road, and I saw a sign. And it says, revival this Sunday. Sinners welcome. I, I, I kind of looked at that, and I thought, Who's going to drive down the road and go, honey, are we sinners? Well, We need to go to that. It's almost, I was like kind of going, what are you, what are you expecting? It probably should say revival, all church members, make sure you're there. Because we all are, you know, but to, but to call, and you know what's going on in their mind. And you're going, all you outside who are sinners, make sure you come. Which, makes, which puts up a what? It puts us a us versus them. I go, uh-uh. It seems to me, the, the gospel tells us that the ground below the cross is very level and we've all been infected. So all of us must come in relation to this. So with non-believers, we can't expect them to be that way. And so the church can sometimes be really hard on those outside while letting things pass on the inside. And so we're really hard on those outside going, man, you, you, can you believe they're doing that? Can you believe this? I can't believe this. Then the church, they'll hear something and go, oh, hmm. well, that's, you know, that's, not, that's not really good. And we'll let it slide. Well, what are we we to judge then? Well, the one that Paul makes it specifically is explicitly sinful behavior of a professing Christian. This is why Paul says, look, I don't even have to be present to push judgment on this guy. Because obviously there's sexual immorality that's going on. And by the way, and, and you know what? You should too. This should bother you. Instead of applauding it, you should mourn this. Jesus said, a tree is known by its fruit. And when we see a brother or a sister in habitual sin, now it doesn't mean, you know, look, your sin, man, I'm going to confront you right like this. Because look, we all have sin that we deal with, right? All of us, all of us, are. We're, daily we're fighting our sin battle. And hopefully we're gaining more and more traction with that, but daily we all fight this. Our attitudes, our judgments, our thoughts, our actions, whatever it is, all of it. And so he's not just saying here, look, just if you see a sin in someone else, then man, get on it right away. He says, but as sinners, as believers in Christ, as the body, we are obligated to one another. To call each other into account. That's the beauty of the body. Now, the word judge is pretty hard to get around because it has such a negative connotation to it. Maybe lovingly confront would be an easier way for us to be able to, to kind of swallow this. But there's a few ways that we know that we're supposed to do this. And first is slow and loving. Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. He goes on there basically saying, hey, before you look at the speck in someone else's eye, make sure you take out the plank in your own. So anytime you come and you know that you're, even if it's lovingly confronting someone else in their sin, you come knowing, hey, you could probably call me out. This helps in relationships, doesn't it? When you're confronting someone else, maybe it's in a relationship, whether it's a marriage or whatever else, and you know you got to say something hard, you come going, look, I know you could call me out on a thousand things. but and it, So it's loving, it's slow. There's a spirit of restoration. This would be a second one. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Underlining Gently lovingly confront I mean, where would David be without Nathan it was Nathan that came along he just he didn't come in and go man you hypocrite how in the world could you do this no he gave him an illustration and it just cut to David's heart and David said that's me and restoration began to occur So, this man in chapter 5, he could have easily been restored had he confessed and repented of his sin. But instead, the church was just letting it slide. You know, I had a, uh, I I discipled a guy at the University of Kentucky, uh, and I told him, I remember he really struggled with sin for a long time, and then he came to Christ. Still struggles with sin, but now he's redeemed. And it was just amazing, he, he, the transformation in his life. And I remember once we were talking, he'd just say, hey, I just want to thank you and Susan for working in my life. And I said, yeah. And I just said, and at one time I told him, I said, look, if you ever hear anything about me leaving Susan, wanting to divorce Susan, whatever else, you, you have full authority to come and kick my rear end. You know, I said, you got full authority to do that. Okay, so, and I forgot I even told him that. Then um, here we are, you know, we'd we'd moved to California, then we'd moved to Arkansas. This is probably 10 years later. Somehow, there had been a rumor back in Lexington, Kentucky that Doug had divorced Susan. Somehow it got out. And so it began to spread through the people that I was discipling that Doug has divorced Susan. Well, he remembered what I told him. He got in his truck and drove 10 hours from Lexington, Kentucky to Searcy, Arkansas, arrived on our doorstep. And the funniest thing, Susan had been cleaning the house, and she took her wedding ring off while she was cleaning (laughs) because she didn't want to get dirty. So when she answers the door, she says, I mean, it was just a moment because we hadn't seen this guy in like 10, 12 years from Lexington. It was just like the past coming to the moment. And she's like, Blaine? Well, what does he look at immediately to see if her ring's on? It's not on. And he's just freaking out. He's like, where's Doug? I'm here to fulfill his promise. (laughs) You know, and, and so she's just like going... Blaine, what are you talking about? And so she told him the story, and he goes, well, well, Blaine, Doug's not here. And he goes, I know. Where is he? And she goes, no. I mean, he, just, he was speaking at a marriage conference this weekend, and he's flying in. I'm supposed to go pick him up at the airport. He goes, I'll go pick him up. So I, I'm coming at Little Rock Airport. I'm coming down the escalator, and here's Blaine with a pizza box inside out that says Doug Grimes on it. And it had it in front of his face, so I couldn't really get who it was until he moved it. And I'm, then I'm going through, what are you doing here? Where's Susan? And he went through this whole story. And I'm like, you know, first thing in my mind was like, Blaine, have you ever heard of a cell phone? <laughs> I mean, you, 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 you drove, but, but he drove 10 hours. I said, "Would you please have dinner with us? He goes, no, no I got to get back. So he had a 20 hour round trip. All for what? All because he knew a brother that he said, "I don't want to, I'm going to step in and I'm going to lovingly, I don't know how lovingly it would have been, but he was he wanted to confront because I gave him permission to do so." And I say, "Look, if, 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 my, if me in this church or anyone else, I can only speak for myself, but if you see in my life that I am in some kind of habitual sin, you have every right and authority to call me out. And you should. Because this is the church. And this should be the safest place for us to not only wrestle with our sin, but have those who will love us through it. And we'll get firm with us when we need to be firm with. With a caveat, lovingly, right? Let's take it home. Worship team, you can come on up. You know, today we had families that have joined the church and we we are many come through which is exciting and and we and you know the question we get today is really why membership why, why do you even have membership and well I think it's one for alignment that we all know that we're we're agreeing on our mission and our purpose that's really important but the but the other part of it that, that Tyler even mentioned was just mutual accountability that we will be here for one another That if something is going on in your life, we're not just going to cast you out and throw you out, but we're going to lovingly step into your life to be able to help you so that we all need that. Because one of Satan's biggest ploys, and we keep falling for it, is isolation. If I can just get you isolated... I can start to talk into your mind, get vain imaginations going, and and you can begin to justify anything you want to do. Look, I can justify any sin I do and find plenty of verses to support it. I'll take them out of context, but I can supply plenty of verses to support it. And when we're in the midst of something, we need others around us that go, this isn't right. Not to judge each other's motives but we all have blind spots and so for us to be able to come along one side and this is look we're in this together and the worst thing we can do when confronted is to take offense to it because that just compounds the sin that we're already in thank god for the body Thank God for the church and hopefully a church like this where we can be there for one another and no one's going to look at someone else going, man, you got a problem and I don't. But we can be a place where we all, you know, we all got problems, we're all working them through, we are all here together, and together we will be the church, hopefully with an attractive place where we can fight our sin and gain victory over it. Let's stand and worship. Couple things at 12:30 today. If you were interested in going on our mission trip to Pontiac, Michigan. Uh to help support Micah Six uh, in Worship B at 12:30, which is all the way back down here, they'll be having an interest meeting. So it doesn't obligate you, but if you'd like to find out more, that's at 12:30. A hundred families is looking for some more canned goods and non-perishable items uh, to stock because they had a setback that they needed some help on, and so you can talk to Courtney more about that. But they'll be out there to be able to talk to you as well. Uh, we come to the Lord's Table this morning. Remember to remember the Passover Lamb of what He's accomplished for us, but. We We also come making sure there's no leaven of wickedness in our hearts. So come, but come contemplatively and first confess before him. If there's any prayer that you would want, we're up here. We'd love to pray with you. You know what to do. Go love first. We love because he first loved us.